Hi, this is Jean-Pierre Mobasser with the Society for Minimally Invasive Spine Surgery. SMIS has online CME credits. There are 25 online modules with a wide range of topics, all dedicated to minimally invasive spine surgery. Each module offers one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. The modules are free for SMIS members, and they are $35 each module for non-members. If you're going to do many of these, it makes sense to just join the SMIS Society as it's a cheaper route to go. Uh, more modules are continually being added and can be found on the esmis.org website. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Well, welcome to the Nursery Podcast. So we were going to release the um, mini-series, if you want, Thursdays for Hobbies and Pastimes of Neurosurgeons, but we thought, wow, we're in the thick of the interviewing season. So JP and I wanted to do something special for all those people who are applying this year, right, JP? Right, exactly. It's a year like no other for so many reasons, and I can only imagine how stressful and uncertain it is for the students in the field today. Right. So for the next couple Thursdays, we're going to have some special episodes discussing the issues related to interviewing applications in the match. And we're going to kick this off with an interview with Kathy Guzman. Now, some of you may know Kathy. I've known Kathy since 1996. I was a um, intern at USC. And Kathy, you just finished at UCLA, right? As an undergrad? That's correct. Right. And Kathy became the administrative assistant for Steve Giannata, who's obviously now the chair of neurosurgery at USC, but used to be one of the uh, associate professors and then full professor. And I got to know Kathy because, of course, whoever is the AA for someone powerful like that, you got to get to know. And Kathy's just such a wonderful person. So, Kathy, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, I know there are a lot of program directors out there uh, that manage this stuff. We have Ingrid Menendez here in Miami. But, Kathy, you have special competence because you were uh, Dr. G's AA for his uh, period as running the uh, Professional Conduct Committee, right, and the ABNS and all those different roles, right? Yeah, absolutely. I definitely learned a lot uh, working with him. He was uh, head of the ABNS and then went on to the RRC and was uh, also chair of the RRC. So uh, definitely learned a lot from that process. Right. And, and I can imagine, I mean, I'm thinking about how many thousands of applicants have come across your office. Can, do you have a number? Wow. Um, well, you know, uh, 300 or so applications that we review, plus uh, all of the our USC students ourselves, and then um, the sub-eyes that we, in a normal season, would have about 20 of every summer. So for 25 years of that, right? So you can do the math. Um, <laughs> Wow. But like JP said, this is this is a this is an unusual year, and so I think it calls upon a need for discussion about how things are different. We did our interviews, our first set of interviews yesterday here in Miami, but wasn't really in Miami. We were in Miami, and folks were all over the country or world. So why don't you start to tell us a little about what you've seen that's been different this year as opposed to previous years? Absolutely, I know that. Um 
the level of uncertainty from uh, both sides, both the students and the applicants is definitely increased over previous years. Um, and just not knowing what is going to happen. Programs don't know, applicants don't know. And so being able to uh, figure out the process has probably been the biggest challenge for both sides. You know, I think that's a very important point to bring up. I, I have a number of friends and, and uh, associates who I know from medical school who are interviewing this year. And they, as I said before, they're so anxious, they feel so uncertain. And I keep trying to reassure them now that I'm a resident in a program and I see the other side of things myself that, trust me, everyone's trying to figure this out as we go along. And everyone has the same goal in mind to get the right applicants matching at the right programs. So, Kathy, have I mean, I guess at USC in particular, what steps have you folks taken to try and get a better sense of these students applying so far this year uh, since you can't meet them in person, you don't have that time to spend with them? Right. So for us, we're actually taking a lot longer to review applications before we send out invitations. So I was um, I was surprised to hear Miami had already actually done an interview. We uh, have actually not even sent out our invitations yet um, because we are trying to do a much uh, deeper review of the applications as they come in before we even send out invitations. We also have um, tried to have our residents reach out and be available uh, for anyone that has questions about the program. We're being a lot more active about making those connections um, before the interview season even starts. Yeah, so Kathy, that's really interesting because JP and I were talking before you came on. We, you know how people are on the interview trail, and there's always like, ah, who are the crazy people? Who are the sociopaths? Who are the who are the wallflowers and all that? This is an interesting situation because we're not actually probably physically meeting these applicants and they have to communicate with us through email, text message, um, phone and the Internet. Right. So do you do you have particular advice of how to do that? Because that's a that's a unique skill set. Right. You don't get to shake somebody's hand and look them in the eye and all that. That is definitely true. And I think that that is the biggest challenge on both sides. The applicants don't get to meet us and we don't necessarily get to meet them in person. And um, even on Zoom, you get a little bit better sense of that. But before all of that happens, uh, I know that there have been a lot of meet and greets, a lot of opportunities for um applicants to learn about programs. And that's really what I would say is that you do need to focus on what you can do. Instead of focusing on what you can't do this year, uh, spend the time and the effort to do what you can do. Attend the, some of the meet and greets. Uh, reach out to programs that you have a particular interest in and send an email, make a phone call, try and make a connection earlier in the process rather than just waiting to see if you happen to get an interview. That's such great advice and I mean, in, in that light, one of the most interesting and, and for me entertaining things of the interview trail in the past few years, in, including my own, was hearing uh, chairs and program directors talk about the thank you notes. After every interview, the, the deluge of thank you notes and thank you emails that pour into departments across the country. Um, I, I remember some places where I interviewed, they came out and said, frankly, at the end of the process, please uh, we, you know, we appreciate you coming here. We know you're grateful. Please don't send us an email saying so. We get 100 emails every day and we don't need more. 
Um, I can only imagine that this year, the level of cyber communication is only going up and up. Um, how do you think applicants should navigate trying to find that good balance of making their interests known, reaching out and contacting people to show their enthusiasm, as you say, but not becoming overbearing and leaning too far into the emails and cyber communication because that's all that they have available? I would say that uh, one of the best things you can do is target your email to the right person. That may not be the department chair or even the program director. That might be someone like me, uh, the residency administrator, or it might be a chief resident, or maybe you figure out who one of the PGY-5s are. Um, in a lot of programs, that year is, in, is incredibly invested because they will be the PGY-7s um, you know, as this group gets into junior residence, at least at USC, the sevens and the twos work very closely together. Um, so find out in the programs that you're really interested in and try and make some direct connections. There are a lot of email addresses out there. There's a lot of people on Instagram. There's a lot of people that are out there and reach out to other places in the program rather than just sending an email to the program director who you're right is inundated and probably is not gonna respond or remember your name. So, Kathy, what kind of uh, applicant do you think will do particularly well in this setting as opposed to previous years? And what kind of applicant do you think will do particularly bad? I, just so people can have some insight, like JP and I are talking about this, that, you know, there are like we were joking around a little bit that maybe people that are a little more socially awkward, a little more of, of, afraid of direct uh, discussion or um, that kind of thing might be someone that might do better in this setting. Is that true? What, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, I think initially that is probably true um, because they're not going to necessarily have to make those face-to-face uh, -face contacts. However, I, I'm pretty sure that that does come across on Zoom or whatever other in you know, face-to-face -face interview platform you're going to be on. Um, so that that definitely can still be a, um, a, a downside. But I also think that a lot of programs are looking at trying to find things in the application that are going to show fit, which is harder to do than it sounds. But it's maybe uh, places are going to look a little more closely at things like hometowns or or uh, if your couple's matching and trying to reach out to see whether, you know, your significant other has interviews in the same town or, um, you know, seeing if there's something else that shows itself in its application that you have a connection or a specific interest in that uh, area of geography or in that specific um, an area of research that fits really well with what the strengths of the program are, uh, those types of things, trying to pull more of that information out of the application. In that light, thinking about the fit of an applicant with the program, I know that one of the most important parts of the interview process, certainly my year, certainly every year, was that time without the chaperones, without the grown-ups, so to speak, that the applicants get to spend with the residents, where the residents of a program get to have a sense of what the real social cohesion is with each person, and where, importantly, the applicant has a chance to ask frank, direct questions, maybe after a couple drinks, with the residents when there's no one around to listen and they can really speak frankly to each other as 
an applicant to someone who was in their shoes just a few years prior. Um, what steps are you taking at USC or what things have you heard of from your counterparts around the country to still give applicants and residents this chance to have unfettered, uh, seemingly unobserved contact to discuss the strengths, perhaps weaknesses and overall fit of a given student with a given program? So for us, and I think for a lot of programs, there is definitely going to be a forum um, as part of the interview day where the residents are on there and the applicants are going to be able to uh, discuss with them. The faculty will not be on there. Um, you know, I may still be on there to help moderate the, uh, you know, <laughs> logistics of the session. However, um, you know, it's not going to be is not going to be something that's going to be monitored by people. And so I think that every program is going to have something like that. But I also think that there is going to be an effort um, by a lot of the, the current residents to reach out individually to people that that in her that interviewed so that they can have conversations with them um, offline, not during the spe specified interview time so that they can um, see whether that connection is there. And sure, it's probably just going to be a phone call, um, but at least there is going to be the chance to have those types of conversations. So one thing for applicants to keep in mind is that is a huge time commitment um, by people who are extremely busy. And so if, if they reach out to you and they want to try and make that connection, that applicants should you know do their best to try and make themselves available. And it'll really be a good way to um, gauge the fit of a program, at least as, as much as possible this year. Yeah, Kathy, it's a really interesting. I, you know, there's been this controversy for a couple decades now about people interviewing more and more and more places and the costs associated. And is that cost restrictive? And in some ways that was, that was like, wow. So these applicants spent, I mean, I remember I spent, you know, probably 10, $15,000 interviewing back in 1995. And that, I was like, well, that's pretty expensive. But then now the shoe's on the other foot for me. And so it's like, now we know that people are interviewing with us are, they're, they're dedicated in a way. They've already made a commitment, right? And that part of it, you, and I hate to even say it like this because a lot of these kids don't have a lot of money. It's so easy to interview, just like the Zoom era is like, it's so easy to have me as visiting professor anywhere now. I'm getting more invitations than ever because it costs them nothing, right, to do this necessarily. Do you feel that that has an impact? And if so, how do you guys measure that level of commitment or engagement? Yeah, that is something that is extremely difficult. And actually, there was a lot of conversation on the national level, whether to try and figure out some sort of paradigm that would sort of force applicants to um, choose a limited number of interviews or to show some level of commitment to a certain program since that cost is not there so that you don't have 20% of the applicants interviewing and 70% of the spots. And that was a large national conversation. And, um, you know, due to the, the sort of just craziness of 2020, um, no final decision really got made about doing that. And it was, it was decided to just sort of let it let the chips fall where they may this year and look at all the data for years going forward. Um, so programs are definitely invested this year to try and, and figure that out. Um, do we have an amazing applicant, but who really just interviewed with us because they could, and they're not that interested. Um, and so, you know, I don't know the answer to that. Unfortunately, I wish I did. 
<laughs> I wish I could say this is the secret. This is what we're going to do. And it's going to work perfectly. Um, unfortunately, I, I don't know the answer. And I, I'm not sure that anyone does because this is the first time we're all doing it. Right. And that, that's been such a huge question in uh, neurosurgery match process for the past several years about how many places to interview and, and what number is too many or excessive. And I, frankly, from the applicant standpoint, um, certainly my year, this was true. Many people don't think there's such a thing as, as too many places. The prevailing philosophy among the students I talked to my year and among many students I continue to talk to is if you choose not to interview somewhere that has offered you a spot, what you're saying is, I'd rather not be a neurosurgeon than train at that program, which is a very extreme view. And it leads people to interview at 15, 18, 20 or more places, which is, you know, in previous years, a huge cost to them and limited only by their ability to, to move through space and, and logistically handle it all. This year, as you say, obviously, there's not that physical constraint. Um, I wonder, though, from the program side of things, given the inability to deeply get to know someone and meet them in person, as we've previously discussed, you, you mentioned that at USC, you're uh, compensating by taking much more time to deeply review the applicants themselves and review their application materials. Are you also compensating by interviewing more people total? Or are you keeping to your, your same number of interviews that you traditionally would offer and just spending more time on the front end to select the students? So we uh, are not interviewing more people, but I know that there are a lot of places that are. There are a lot of places that, that are interviewing more people. There are probably an even larger number of places that are interviewing the same number of people as they have in the past. Uh, we are actually aiming at interviewing a few less than normal. Hmm. So it, it's, it just really depends on um, the program and the approach and the way that they decide that they, you know, want to do this. And, and just like, you know, we talk about how, you know, every program in the country is, um, you know, under the same rules by the ACGME, they're accredited, they all have to follow the same things, but every program is also unique. And so every program is going to approach this in a slightly different way. And so I always tell the students that I advise um, from USC, just because I tell you something and this is the way we do it here at USC doesn't necessarily mean that that's the same approach that's going to happen somewhere else. And so um, I guess I would just circle back again to what I said about, you know, you have to focus on the things that you can do something about. Um, because you're not going to have all the answers. You're not going to have an algorithm that is going to guarantee you to match. There's no such thing as finding the perfect program and the perfect path to get you to that program. Um, so what can you do? You can focus on, on making sure you had a great application in, which for this year, that's already a done deal. Nothing else you can do about that. Um, but you can work on making contacts. You can work on learning about the program so that you don't reach out with questions that are easily available to you. You use that precious time to ask about questions that are not out there online somewhere for you to find already. Um, you, you do your follow-up. You, you make sure that you know how to use the platforms that are out there, Zoom or otherwise. 
honestly, I'm going to have enough time trying to get my faculty to use it correctly. So I would love for all my applicants to already be experts. <laughs> well, Kathy, Kathy, I'm going to call on your 25 years of experience in managing Dr. Giannata's office and all these applicants and have you tell us, I mean, maybe this isn't even relevant to this era, but it's just a, a, a constant across ages. What is the kiss of death for an applicant to do? Like the, the kind of thing when they do that, he or she does that, you're like, Dr. G, please don't match this person. I'm going to have to quit. <laughs> um, I would say do not um, send me an email asking the same question like eight days in a row because I haven't answered you yet. Um, give me a minute to get back to you. Um, back in the day, it was phone calls, right? But now I'm not even in the office. I'm, you know, mostly in my office at home. And so you can't really call me. But if you're going to email me, give me a minute to respond. Remember that I am a person. Um, you need to be kind. Actually, that is really the biggest thing is do not be unkind uh, to me or the other people that you are interacting with because um, that that's... Seven years is a long time to have to uh, live with that. Well, Kathy, we want to respect your time. And you've, uh, you've obviously shared a, an invaluable amount of information for the applicants in the field today and, and maybe even some insights that those of us on the other side of things can appreciate and apply in our own process. I wonder if before we close, though, if you have any uh, fond or funny memory of Dr. Wang during his residency that you can share, if not for our audience, at least just for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. Um, well, probably the fondest memory was uh, attending his wedding, which was a very fun occasion. Um, had a really good time doing that. Um, but I would say as a resident, uh, watching he and his co-resident, uh, Charles Liu, interacting was always a fun experience. How so? How did they get along? <laughs> There was, there was just a lot of a lot of banter and um, you know four letter words involved. So <laughs> I think that's still true today. <laughs> uh, uh, well, well, Kathy, on behalf of everyone listening, and, and particularly the medical students applying this year, who I'm sure um, can't express the gratitude for the insight and advice you've shared today. Thank you so much for your time and as Dr. Wang described your vast expertise that you're sharing with us. And uh, it's been an honor to have you here on the Neurosurgery Podcast. Thanks. Thank you so much. Hi, this is Angela Richardson, the Skull Basin Cerebrovascular Fellow at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, reminding you to sign up to contribute to the NREF through Amazon Smile. The NREF has contributed $30 million to the future of neurosurgery over the past 40 years. If you have any questions or problems with the registration, you can email us at neurosurgerypodcast at gmail.com.